The idea for the next Blockbuster product is in the head of one of your employees. Is your company built to unlock their knowledge and their potential? For global organizations, that's no mean feat, particularly as traditional structures of hierarchy can blunt the creative impact of individual employees. I'm Greg Thomas from Workday, and today on the Workday podcast, we'll learn more about the importance of employee engagement and collaboration in releasing human potential. To do that, we're joined today by author and HR leader, Matthew Hanwell, Director of HR Process and Operational Development at Fiskers Group. Welcome, Matthew. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Glad you're here. So let, let's start uh, just with a little bit about Fiskers. For those that, that don't know, company's been around a, a sort of surprisingly long time. 369 years That's this amazing. year. amazing. Which is amazing. And when you think back what was happening 369 years ago, you know, that Charles I in England was being beheaded. <laughs> so that was a different era, right? It's a different era. <laughs> Quite. A, and through, the, through those 369 years, a lot of change has happened. Yeah. And, and to survive 369 years, you have to change, you have to embrace, you have to adapt, and you have to remain relevant. Yeah, which probably gives you a, a pretty unique perspective uh, as an organization on, on the, the constant change that businesses live through mm-hmm. today. Absolutely. Uh, so let's um, let's dive in for you. So you've you've worked at, at at a number of different companies that have different approaches when it when it comes to using technology. Nokia, now Fiskars. What when you think about what is needed from a cultural and technological perspective, uh, what goes into a, a, the longevity of a company and, and making it successful? I think all companies need to reinvent themselves. Um, obviously, they are business cycles. Um, I think remaining in touch with your consumers and the market is critical for the survival of any company. But I also think internally you have to remain aware of the external world and how disruptions are happening. And I think what's fatal for companies is to ignore that external reality. Uh, I worked at a company, Digital Equipment Corporation, where, which tended to ignore things like PCs mm-hmm. for a number of years. And then f- from being a market leader, you become a follower you become a fast follower, and that's a much more difficult place to be. So I think keeping aware of what's happening outside, um, maybe disrupting yourself before others disrupt you would be very good advice to any, yeah. any company in, in the modern world. Yeah, and I think uh, for companies that have been successful, it, it can perhaps be particularly challenging to, to realize that the product line that has sustained you for however many years is, is no longer what's resonating with consumers. And, and, and as you say, if you, if you don't change someone's going to be quite happy to, to take your business. Absolutely. I remember at Nokia, you know, Nokia had 40% market share in the mobile phone space, and the iPhone came out, and, and people in Nokia sort of ignored it and said, well, it's actually not very good technically. Mm. It doesn't have certain features and functions. And I think they were missing the whole usability uh, yeah. that changed the game. And uh, that's why they, Apple is where it is today, and, and Nokia isn't really making mobile phones anymore. And, of course, there are, there are many examples like that. Blockbuster Video in the U.S., Kodak, Kodak, Kodak with the digital camera. Absolutely. They, they invented it, right? 1975. Yeah. Uh, they made a lot of money on royalties for digital photography, but, you know, it would have disrupted and cannibalized their, their film right. business. So they, they decided not to do it. That's right. And Fatal. Uh, fatal in the end, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so one of the things that that's interesting uh, about you as as a as a sort of HR practitioner is is, is you've written a book uh, a few years ago, the the workplace community. 
uh, talk about that. What what was uh, the basic idea behind that? Why did you write it? And and maybe how how has it held up? How has the world changed since you put those thoughts down on paper? Firstly, I'd say I'd never thought I would write a book. Uh, it wasn't one of my dreams or visions, but but I noticed at my time at Nokia, where I was responsible for community and social media, that something different was happening. Mm. With the technologies that are now available to us, we're able to communicate at almost zero cost around the world. And that facilitates uh, the emergence of communities. Think of Wikipedia, think of Linux, open source development. These things wouldn't have been possible without a technology platform. And so what I, I started to become interested in was this sense of community and, and what drives people to come together to achieve something. And then when I really did some research on it, I, I came to the conclusion that actually community is the oldest form of organization that has existed. Uh, communities existed before hierarchies, before line organizations, before project teams. And back in the hunter-gatherer days, if you were not part of a community, that was a death sentence. Literally fatal. Literally. So, so humans are wired to commune. Humans come together. We are social animals. Uh, but sometimes in organizations, the way we set them up don't allow for that natural human behavior to be exhibited. And so we, we, we're put in boxes. I sometimes call, call them cells. And we're told to do our job. And we're limited by the, the, the job description that we're given. And we don't tap into then the passions, the, the ideas, the thoughts, the, the willingness, the generosity that we might have to contribute to other things in other parts of the organization or even outside of the organization. Uh, I think if you look at people's hobbies and interests, where they belong to clubs or societies, uh, you'll see a high degree of community behavior. And of course, I think community is one of those words that's very easily said. And we all have a feeling we know what it means because we live in communities. But achieving that behavior in a company is much more difficult, much more challenging, because people set us goals, set us targets, limit what we're able to do, and expect us to deliver against certain timelines. Communities are much more uh, agile, flexible, emergent than that. Mm. Uh, I would say that, that that thesis has held up quite well. There's a lot of conversation in the workplace community today about those t mm. exact concepts, agility, how do you tap into people's full potential. So. Uh, how do you think the industry is doing? I think we're a long way from tapping into the full potential of people. Um, when I look around the organization I work in, but also other organizations, you know, people do good jobs, they do good work, they, they do some great work sometimes. But what would they do if they could choose for themselves on a daily basis? What would they contribute to? What ideas are they really having? And what's that discretionary effort that could be tapped into that could be used for other purposes rather than their specific job description? And I think the challenge is how to engage people in such a community effort. Three things are critical for me. The first one is there has to be a purpose to it. You know, communities don't exist without a purpose. Um, tapping into and believing in that purpose is critical. Um, then having the tools and technology to enable you to collaborate in ways that contribute value to that purpose. And then thirdly, uh, what's the bargain? You know, what's in it for me? Why would I contribute? Why would I waste my time? Why would I give something away for free, even if it's just my time or knowledge or whatever it may be? What do I get back from it? And that can be intrinsic or explicit. But I think those three things are critical to any community. And you've got an interesting cross-section there. So, so purpose perhaps could be 
uh, an organizational purpose. Could it, mm-hmm. it could be a team purpose. It could it could even be that intersection of, of mm-hmm. my individual mm-hmm. purpose. Uh, tools and technology to, to bring that collaboration to life. So this notion of the bargain is interesting. There, there's been research done about intrinsic motivation versus extrinsic motiv- motivation. And, and especially when it comes to that discretionary effort, it, it seems to come more from, the, from intrinsic motivators. Mm-hmm. What is, what's your thinking around that? Well, well, I think it's interesting when you look at performance management systems and approaches around the world and, and, and as, you know, system support. And um, if I were to pay you money to do what I tell you to do, that's sometimes called blackmail, right? And I reward you if you do what I tell you to do. But when you believe in something, when you believe in a purpose or an igniting question or an inspirational thought, uh, you tend to give away more, you contribute more, not because of a reward that's going to be given to you, but because it makes you feel good. You feel good about yourself, and that's a very powerful motivator in people. I've seen in communities fantastic things be created with no financial reward whatsoever. Think, again, think of Wikipedia. Uh, the interesting story there is in the first two years of, of Wikipedia, before they adopted a wiki technology, they had produced, I think it was 190 pages, and they had formal approvals and reviews and more approvals. And that limited the contribution that anyone could make. Once they adopted a wiki platform, you know, they now have the millions and hundreds of millions of pages and knowledge that they, they were able to uh, put together through the generosity of people. So, so communities also require generosity. People yeah. give something. But the reason they do that is that they feel good about doing so. That's right. And that is not monetary, as, as you not said. Not normally. Not normally. Um, um, so, so let's shift a little bit to, to what organizations can do to, to tap into potential uh, you mentioned communities preceded hierarchies, but mm-hmm. a lot of companies are still organized, at least loosely, or at least in some places, on a hierarchical model, and many are still fully hierarchical. Um, is that the right model for today? And if not, how do we evolve past it? I, I think it's a very traditional model. It, of course, it developed in the industrial era. And I think if you read anything by Frederick Taylor in around 1911, he'll describe exactly how you organize uh, people and work according to hierarchy. Uh, The work that I did at Nokia, we looked at four ways of working. The first one was entrepreneurship or intrapreneurship. So how do you you develop intrapreneurs within an organization and give them the freedom to explore, innovate, and develop? Then, of course, the traditional hierarchical command and control and matrix organizations that go with that. Then we also looked at project modes and how you bring skills and competencies together to accomplish a task. And ultimately, how do you develop communities and how do you allow communities to flourish, not in competition with any of the other modes, but in, you know, side by side with it. And, and what we found was that these were very distinct modes of work that can be applied to different tasks or different challenges. And sometimes it's not the right way to use a community. Sometimes it's not the right way to use a hierarchy. I think um, we talk in the book uh, about <laughs> default modes. And because people have usually built hierarchies and command and control, that's what they tend to do. And that's what they're, they're used to in their career. So they perpetuate that. Uh, but actually, in today's world, uh, you can tap into this community way of working. The challenge with community is it needs to be led a little differently. It isn't about giving orders. It isn't about instructing. It's more about emergent leadership and followership and people believing in the purpose and wanting to contribute. And typically, communities take time to, to, to be created. It's not, the worst mistake I've ever seen is when a leader stands up and says, we are a community. 
and then gives a direct instruction that you will contribute so much by the end of the week. You are a community when you behave like a community. And I, I think you see it in the Workday community, by the way. The contribution from customers, from partners, online, giving away knowledge, giving away experiences, sharing advice for free is an extremely valuable resource for, for all of us Workday customers. So this notion of um, communities being perhaps more emergent, self-organizing, uh, you know, traditionally in a, in a hierarchy, there's a top-down strategy mm -hmm. that everyone adheres to. How does, how does the role of a, of a business strategy, a product strategy, mesh into uh, a different way of working and, and, and that notion of purpose so that those, those teams, whether they're uh, big or small, so, you know, self-directed or not, that they're all rowing in the same direction. <laughs> there, there can be te tensions in communities. Communities go through a life cycle. Uh, it's a bit like a, a maturity curve of a teenager or a child mm. becoming a teenager. So in the early phase of a community, there's usually an idea, a thought, uh, a wish, a purpose, but the community will come together around it. People will coalesce around that mm -hmm. and really discover what is the real purpose. Quite often communities, early communities, split into different factions. Uh, sometimes there's tension there. Sometimes they never get beyond that stage. But I think they coalesce around a, a, a specific purpose that is interesting to the people. And then once they mature, then they start to add value uh, as, a, as, a, as an organization. Um, one thing I would say is that in every organization, or all organizations are laced with communities. Mm. It's those networks of people who share a passion or an interest about a topic and share information and help and support each other. Sometimes that's uh, by email, sometimes that with chat messaging, sometimes that's by physical meetings. And those communities just aren't utilized in, in a broader sense because they're not visible and they're not transparent. Right. They're so not on an org chart. You don't see them. And I think if you do a social network analysis of an organization of who people talk to, who people go to, where do people get support, it does not reflect your hierarchical uh, org chart typically. So how does work really get done? is a much more social endeavor, I would claim. Mm. Yes. Um, so let's mm -hmm. let's shift a little bit and talk about um, HR technology and, mm -hmm. and, and the role of technology in, in helping work get done, as, as you've been talking about. Um, just as you talked about communities having purpose, collaboration tools, and a bargain, when people think about technology, there's there's a technology itself, there's the, the process behind it, there's the cultural adoption. Uh, and throwing technology at a problem very often is not the right answer. So talk about the role of, of culture and of building some consensus around uh, the, the use or adoption of technology so that it achieves the goals that it's intended to achieve. Sure. The way I think about it is, is in two dimensions. I think in one dimension you've got technology change. And I think that's the easy path. You know, you can implement, you can launch, you can buy, you can adapt. Uh, adopt new technology very, very quickly today. The other dimension is behavior and culture, and that's what people actually do. And if you just focus on technology adoption, you tend to get 10% adoption. You know, the, the, the early adopters will pick it up, the IT department will start using it, but you don't reach a critical mass. If you just focus on the culture and behavior, you end up with a lot of frustrated people who haven't got the tools to be able to interact in the way they want. So you have to find this balance between culture, behavior, and technology. And it's a little bit like a winding road between those two dimensions, finding the right steps, pushing the technology forward, 
pushing the culture. And I think the technology can drive the behaviour and culture, but equally the behaviour and culture can drive the technology. And it's finding the balance between those two, which I think is a sweet spot. Don't focus purely on technology and don't focus purely on, on behaviour and culture. There are more generations in the workplace today than there have been. This is not news. Um, and, and expectations uh, around technology, around the way people work, around almost everything you could think of in the workplace reflects that, that broad generational uh, set of differences. How do people navigate those waters? How do you, how do you approach the idea that you're going to have almost different cultural biases in the workplace. You're going to have people who, who've had very different experiences with the workplace, with technology in the workplace, with how to work. Um, but things are obviously changing, and, and we all need to continue to, to show up, do our best work, and, and feel part of that purpose you spoke of earlier. What's one to do to, to, <laughs> to, to harness all of the goodness of, of a multi-generational workplace? I think it's a fascinating time in the workplace with that and for that reason. I do think of the younger generation, and I have teenage children who teach me every day. Uh, they are the digital natives. You know, they've grown up digital. They've grown up not knowing the world before Google, not knowing the world before a, a, a mobile phone. If they want to find something, they'll find it immediately online, and they have no fear. It's a little bit like fish swimming in water, right? They, they, they do it naturally. They don't fear anything. They're probably they're not aware of all the risks that they might be taking there. And then people of my generation are more, you know, like the swimmer who puts their foot in the water, how does it feel, acutely aware of perhaps it's dangerous, perhaps there's some sharks out there, mm. perhaps I could do something wrong. Um, I think you have, to, you have to bring these people together. Uh, and I think one of the uh, good ideas that, that I've seen done is, is actually reverse mentoring, where you take somebody from a younger generation and you have them mentor somebody of perhaps my generation, for them to become more familiar, more comfortable in the digital water, as I, mm -hmm. as I said. Uh, and surprising how, how the older generation will adapt to those technologies once they feel comfortable in it, once they feel safe, once they understand what's going on. I think the challenge for the older generation is just understanding this way of working, this level of collaboration, because they're just not used to it. Mm -hmm. A little bit like in the earlier years, people were afraid of email, and you know, who's going to read them and where they're going to go. Or even the telephone, when that was introduced, people are afraid of who's going to call who and who has access and can we control and restrict. Yeah, and new cultural norms, new behaviors. Exactly. So all those things. So I think, I think the younger generation do it naturally because they've grown up uh, Im submerged in it, literally submerged in it. And um, yeah. we have to, the digital immigrants have to, uh, have to learn to, to adapt to the new ways of working. And at the same time, this might be a place where technology in some ways has enabled what perhaps people have wanted since the time of, of hunter-gatherers in the savannah. That mm -hmm. notion of community was, was not possible in a, in a workplace or, or even a societal sense without some of the technologies that have come with the Internet and mobile phones and the like. And, and so it's those digital natives perhaps uh, take to it natively, uh, but, but the rest of us also say, well, that's wonderful. That now that we have this. Yeah, and I think, as I said, I think your community, when you behave like one, and when you, when you feel the benefit of a community, you, you tend to be more generous and you tend to adapt and adopt to the technology and the capabilities that uh, it gives you. Mm. A classic example from my life is uh, I, I have an old, uh, a 52-year-old car, which I tend to maintain myself, and there's a wonderful global community that just talks about how to maintain this type of car, down to every little nut and bolt and rivet. 
I have no idea who these people are around the world. But if I ask a question about how do you do this, or I'm hearing this sound, I could guarantee that within a few minutes, maybe an hour at most, I will have dozens of responses, people willing and offering to help me solve my problem. That's the power of community. And when you feel that, you, you get it. In the, in the hunter-gatherer days, we felt it physically because we were connected physically together, we saw each other. Now with the digital technology, these communities can be global and have no restrictions. You know, there's no headcount for a community. Let's carry on with the, the notion of, of digital natives and, and how technology is, has changed the, the workplace. Um, for, for those who have recently entered the workforce, they, they bring those expectations from their, their digital nat nativity, if that's a word. Uh, and, and businesses don't always have internal systems that, that match that consumer experience outside, whether it's Google, Amazon, Facebook, what have you. Um, how do companies adapt to this? Because it, it, it can become a talent uh, hiring and retention inhibitor for, for companies. Yeah, I think companies are, are learning to catch up. I think historically companies had the money to invest in technology, but as you correctly say, now the youngsters have access to technology that's more enabling than typically the companies have. So I think the younger generation when joining the workforce will generally be disappointed you know, and surprised. Um, they will question, why can't I download this app? Why can't I use this tool that I've used in my university to collaborate with my Why my do peers? I have to remember all these different passwords? Yes, why do I have to come to the office? You know, I can do this and this and this. It's my contribution. So I think they'll be a little bit surprised, perhaps disappointed. But I would ask them to, to challenge their organizations that they join because all organizations in time will become more like the digital natives. To survive, that will be essential. Uh, and it will be, you know, the older generation that need to adapt more and need to embrace these new capabilities and these new ways of working, particularly if we want to tap into this human potential. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of technology on the horizon that, mm -hmm. that promises to, to change the, the way we work. There's uh, automation, machine learning, uh, robotic process automation, uh, blockchain as, as these technologies percolate uh, out there, how do, you, how do you see them entering more of the HR mainstream and, and, and changing the way that we, that we work? I think all technology has a purpose, and that's to make us do better work, to enable us to do better work. And no matter what that technology is, I think as long as we feel it's enabling us and helping us and enabling us to do greater things, uh, I think it will be adopted. I think if there's a fear that it's threatening us or will replace us, obviously there will be a reaction to that as well. But I think history tells us, going back to the printing press, that you can't resist technology. It will happen. And so I think uh, a healthy adoption approach is the best way forward. Um, the challenge is always this balance between technology and behavior. And, and go too far on the technology front, you lose the people. Um, I don't like the word adoption anymore. I would rather say addiction. <laughs> and the reason for that, when, again, when I look at my teenage children, they're addicted to their phones. You know, it stays with them day and night. And there's the apps that they use, which are frequently on, frequently connected, frequently collaborating with someone somewhere. And I hope that in the future, in the HR space, we will have equally uh, addictive applications that we can't live without. You know we're constantly using them because they help us get our job done better. And I think that's the challenge for, for HR te technology, to move from adoption to addiction.
How do you think we, we're doing on that front at, at the moment as an industry? Well, I think most of the, of the products I look at help us uh, execute processes, uh, execute tasks, but I'm not sure they help us uh, get work done better. And I think the sweet spot will be connecting processes, tools, communication, collaboration with actually doing better work and getting work done better. I think AI and machine learning will help us, guide us, advise us, so I'm excited by that. But actually doing better work, I think, is the, is the ultimate goal. Yeah. So, you know, we're here at Workday Rising Europe. There was some talk this morning in the keynote about uh, the role of prediction, mm -hmm. machine learning enabled predictions to help bring us information that we otherwise wouldn't have to then have a person take some judgment on and, mm -hmm. and, and choose to, to make a decision. And that feels like something that you're describing where I'm the way in which I work has been improved by a piece of technology helping me to, to know something I otherwise wouldn't have known or would have taken much more time to know. I think it's about quality, how we spend our time. Return on time may be the, the ultimate measure. How do we get more done, better work done, uh, in less time? And I think things that tell us, inform us, predict, shape our thinking and enable us to get a better result in a faster time will all benefit us. And I think maybe that is the ultimate uh, resource that we have we can't ever get more of is time. So a return on time, I think, is the ultimate mm -hmm. measure of success. Um, let's turn uh, to your advice for folks. So you've, you've been part of some pretty ambitious HR transformation projects. Uh, you know, for a listener who's, who's nodding their head as they listen along, what advice would you give them to, to how they should start to to use uh, technology to, to achieve the, this new world of work and to move them meaningfully in that direction? Uh, my first advice would be, you know, step into the water, jump in uh, and move very quickly. I think unlike the old days where people went through long uh, processes of definition of everything up front and then launch something a couple of years later or over, I think this is much more uh, about evolving prototypes where you try something, if it doesn't quite work, you adjust it, you change based on the actual reality and the actual data, not on your thoughts of what it might be. So I think I would advise people to, to adopt uh, and to move very quickly, as fast as they possibly can. But I would also say that, and I've learned this with my own workday implementations, is the go live isn't the end of anything. It is just the start. Yeah. And once you're live, reality kicks in processes are executed, people do use the system, but perhaps in different ways than you could possibly imagine. Learn to listen to that, learn to learn from that, and adapt very quickly to the reality that you see with your users. That is all the time we have for today. I want to thank Matthew Hanwell from Fisker's Group for joining us today on the Workday Podcast. If you'd like to hear more, please subscribe. Thank you for listening.